Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 141, The Conundrum of Family. Last time we discussed the complicated situation around the now-widowed husband of the Dowager Queen, who found himself with young children and no patron to defend him. Owen Tudor had known his Welsh lineage was an issue at court. He had actually petitioned, as recently as 1432, to be granted an exemption from the legal and social restrictions placed on those from Welsh origins. Like many Welsh nobility and upper classes, he de was declared English. An exemption that we mentioned a few episodes back would make him, or at least alleviate, the disadvantages he faced as being of Welsh birth in an English court. Of course, this was part of what angered English nobles, and they would spend a lot of time fighting against. Owen, now uh, Fitz Meredith, was able to gain this exemption, but was still unable to hold any office of note. This granting of citizenship would have long-term consequences, not necessarily for Owen, but rather for his children, Edmund and Jasper, who would now be considered English, and thus be able to do what their ancestors could not, hold positions legally in the court of Henry VI. The winter of 1436 and 37 was apparently very cold and bitter at the same time that the Dowager Queen was ill. Catherine had been sick for a while during 1436 with a disease which had slowly been debilitating her body and her mind. By the new year, Catherine had made a will and by February 8th, 1437, had died and been buried at Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey. With the death of Catherine, it was apparent that Owen was in trouble. He would not be able to maintain his place, and the young age of Henry VI meant that Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, brother of Henry V and leading member in the Regency Council, could finally be rid of this man and his children. Humphrey hated Owen because of his marriage to Catherine, because it had partially undermined the legislation Humphrey had put in place to keep her from remarrying, and the fact that he now had children with her, who were related to his nephew, the king, made it worse. Certainly no one could consider them in the line of succession, seeing as they were only maternally linked, yet the fact would be a bone of contention and probably wrangled him even more. The young king, for his part, was curious about these new relations, apparently people he had not really met, or at least that's what the chroniclers claimed. Both the pro- and anti-Tudor ones believed that he had never met his step-siblings. At the death of his mother, Henry called Owen to meet with him at court. 
Owen, of course, was concerned for his safety, as you would expect. This was not a safe period for those who crossed royal desires. He asked for and received some insurance that he would be kept safe and able to meet with the king without arrest or, honestly, worse. At the meeting, it is reported that he begged the king not to listen to those who spoke against Owen and that he was not looking to harm the king's interests. Effectively, he was pleading his case before the court in the hopes that the young king, who was 16 at the time and had just gained his measure of separation from the Regency Council, would be able to keep the whims of his uncles at bay. The king had been crowned almost a decade prior, but still seemed heavily influenced by those in his family who saw Owen as a threat. To be fair to the uncles and their concerns, they were likely not unfounded, but it was a few decades and generations before it would be realized. Owen, for his part, took his family, put his three young boys into protection, and then he himself fled to Wales, likely hoping that out of sight would be out of mind. His trip was to head north, into North Wales, likely back to where his family was from, and the safety of relatives who would protect him while he plotted what to do next. Realistically, in a period of governmental instability, Owen was never out of mind for at least one member of the court. As he arrived in Warwickshire, only to find himself caught up by a royal messenger, who then demanded his return to London. There he pled his case, but to no avail. During the late spring or early summer of 1437, Owen Tudor was arrested. We know this because the council meeting held in July of 1437 was where a debate was held over what to do with him. Humphrey launched into a campaign for a continued arrest of Owen due to his possible treason and any ideas that he might have about rebellion. Wales, in 1437, was only 20 years since the end of the Glyndwr Revolt and had had a number of mini-revolts and uprisings and discomforts and general lawlessness appear periodically after that. So, in a way, they're not completely incorrect. And Humphrey himself had grown up during the Glyndwr Revolt and likely saw the toll it took on his father, Henry IV. Combine that with his attempts to limit Catherine, and it was obvious that he would lead this charge. They sold all the property Owen had had, which amounted to a total of £137. That cost of being the husband of the Dowager Queen and a tutor were high. He had lost the last of what he had kept with him and what was keeping him solvent after the end of his family's control in Anglesey, and, of course, his access to royal privilege. Owen had effectively lived for five years in a state of at least some comfort. If Humphrey thought that he had dealt with this Welsh problem, he was very much mistaken. Owen had some plans in place that he hoped would at least change his fortune. In late 1437, or possibly in the early part of 1438, he escaped Newgate Prison in London. Newgate was a fairly notorious prison, one that even in that period they had to make some reforms to to make it more tolerable. 
and to kind of clean up some of the worst aspects of it. But even in that situation and with that ability to make it better and to make it more secure, it didn't stop people from being easily bribed. And at some point, a priest and Owen were able to escape the prison. And in doing so, he violently assaulted at least one of his jailers in his escape attempt. They exceeded for at least a few days or possibly at most a month. Owen was then recaptured in March of 1438 along with this helpful priest. Owen found himself moving back to Newgate in London once again. And then eventually, after a very long stretch to Windsor Castle, into a gilded cage, as it were. His bail was then set at 2,000 pounds with the promise of good behavior and was barred from Wales or the marches, likely to keep him from possibly creating a revolt and the amount, of course, likely to keep his friends and benefactors from helping him out. Of course, he didn't have 2,000 pounds laying around. He owned next to no property and owned nothing of worth. On November 10th, 1439, almost three years after Catherine's death, Owen was finally granted a pardon from all his crimes, or at least the crimes he was accused of. By 1440, he was set free to associate with the royal household once again, and as well, he was able to avoid the bail costs, that outstanding sum of £2,000. While Owen suffered these indignities and deprivations, his surviving children, Edmund and Jasper, and possibly a younger brother named Owen, had been given to Catherine de la Pole, sister of the fourth Earl of Suffolk, William de la Pole, and they were sent there to be watched over and kept out of trouble. Catherine was the abbess of Barking Abbey, a wealthy nunnery in London, one that had owned quite a lot of property and had become wealthy even before Catherine arrived. De La Pole had come to her position possibly as early as age 21 or 23. She was considered shrewd and had used her wealth in the Abbey and her own abilities to extend her power and influence in the area and within court. She was very much a power unto herself and was instrumental in positioning the boys as refined children with a wide education. She would raise the boys for five years while their father was in legal trouble and in prison. They apparently came to the abbey with servants and a number of expensive requirements. Barking claimed that the boys cost them 13 pounds a week to feed. The boys and the retinue, of course, had outstanding other costs, such as their housing, their education, and other duties that they might have. So just the 13 pounds was quite a lot, and yet very little of the overall cost. These costs were then borne in part by the government, who paid the expenses of the step-siblings of the king. And even though grudgingly, they were met by the crown at every pound. It was Catherine who persuaded King Henry VI to take an interest in the boys, his half-brothers. She was able to do this in part because her brother was a member of the king's council and had grown close enough to the young man to be an influence to him. For Owen's boys, in the midst of the chaos, Catherine was likely a stabilizing influence as 
I mentioned she was a fairly strong leader and probably brooked no disagreement, I would think. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. In 1442, Edmund and Jasper were actually brought to court. Owen apparently decided early in life to dedicate himself to the church and remained in the clergy. At least that's what some think happened to the younger brother. We don't fully know. We're not completely sure there was a younger brother, but if there was, that's what's claimed to have happened to him. Catherine worked to bring this reconciliation between these step-siblings, bore fruit, and created a key point in the story of the Tudors. In time, Henry took an interest in his relations and in their upbringing. Henry himself, at this age, had entered into full adulthood, at 16, claiming his rights to rule and had, by this point, become a full-fledged adult, was in his 20s and was about to get married, but at the same time had little interest in ruling. His general presentation by biographers in this age was one of a young man who was very religious and very strict in those convictions. This meant that later biographers would claim that he was very saintly and very holy, but it also meant that in the current circumstance, he was also perceived as very weak and very easily manipulated. Even before all of his mental problems that would come later, he was, in reality, already in some trouble. This meant that because of these religious convictions, he was extremely strict with the court over things of God while not paying attention to the mundane items of rule at court and in the administration of England and, of course, the war with France. This he left to his uncles and, during their time, were relatively effective. But keep in mind, this is at a point, especially in the Hundred Years' War, where things were not going great. There was not much to speak of in success at this point for the English. They were on the road to disaster in the Hundred Years' War. It was about to come to an end in not more than a few more years. And in the meantime, there was resentment and growing discontent with the way the king's life had been managed by his uncles. Of course, the king took his younger 
step-siblings under his wing and said he would help them with religious instruction. Again, this concern over the realm above left him avoiding the one in the here and now. You can see, as I said in his biographies, that he was troubled by this burden of expectation to live up to his famous father and grandfather. His personality and temperament were completely at odds with what his father and grandfather had been, who both seemed to be vicious warrior kings. Henry was definitely not that. He was honestly a terrible medieval king, who was married eventually to a powerful and politically astute French princess, or at least politically active French princess, who as Queen of England would continually do what her husband either could not do or did not want to do. Henry VI was, as said on many occasions so far, weak and ineffectual king at a time when the leader was needed. As I said earlier, his uncles carried out aspects of rule in his stead and for a while did reasonably well in their attempts to keep the kingdom running and the world working in a way that it needed to. But Owen Tudor was a symptom of a larger problem. Society in England and Wales, especially at the upper levels, was unhappy with the way feudalism was working. The idea that you would owe fealty to a lord and pay dues to them that would stretch from the lowest servant all the way up to the highest lord, going as far to the king, was something which had started to rankle within society. It wasn't to a stage where we would see a complete break from it, but you can see in peasants' revolts, in the problems that were coming up consistently in the other parts of the kingdom, there was a breakdown, one in which the desire for representation, the desire for a piece of the pie and protection or some sort of newfound way of dealing with the world was on the horizon and was definitely on the way. But in the meantime, there was a lot of other things that seemed to be occupying most of society. And the reality of it is, keep in mind, this is still a hundred years away from the Tudors taking government and taking control in, in the way we consider them with Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, and much of the way the Brit British and English kingdoms and empires changed so dramatically with colonization and the Reformation, and then, of course, the Renaissance, was still to come at this point. And we're still in the midst of an era of god-kings, for lack of a better phrase, in charge of massive bureaucracies of fealty that every level was responsible for, and the collection of taxes and the costs being borne out of having both the crown and the church demanding money f or or equivalencies meant that effectively your responsibility was stretched thin you would have to pay your lord for the upkeep of your land for the wheat that you raised you would have to divide with them or you know whatever your work process was if you were in a guild you paid money to the guild there was all these extra costs of being poor or middle class in the feudal period that doesn't exist or at least changes dramatically over the next hundred years. 
combine with that the demands of a, a war that's being fought in France that's costing the English ground thousands of pounds every year that is accomplishing very little in the process in trying to push forward this effectively weak idea that somehow the king of England was the king of France, even though not by the proper lineage. And all of this continues to take out the advantages that these kingdoms had. Keep in mind, as France and England, the two most powerful kingdoms in Europe during this period, are fighting and bickering and debating and trying to gain power over each other. Spain and Portugal will rise in their stead, effectively because they're willing to do what these countries are not or cannot because of their concerns in France and the debate over who should lead. And so we see Portugal starting to move trade and commerce down the coast of Africa in an attempt to circumvent the Italian control of the spice and, and silk trade, which had been going through the Middle East and had been a part of the reason why the Italian city-states had grown so rich, why Venice was such a major player in Europe. So Portugal and eventually Spain, both trying to circumvent that, would head down the coast of Africa, or in the case of Spain, into the New World. And Portugal and the Portuguese kingdom would eventually start the African slave trade because of this during the 15th century. And we would see that this would, of course, kick off a lot more of what is considered the Renaissance and uh, Reformation period of trade and massive change, which comes seemingly overnight, but it developed within about 100 and 150 years of this period, all in an attempt to try and cut into the Italian market and trying to circumvent the money and costs that was happening because they had to go through the Middle East. For our little Welsh tutors, all of this, of course, is well beyond their knowledge or well beyond their understanding of the world or what's going on around them. But nonetheless, this all has reason to affect them and to affect everything that happens to them for the next well, 200 years of the existence of their family as a monarchy, in fact. And all of this coming from just a one man and the fact that against what, I can't say legally, but at least the spirit of the law as desired by Humphrey, ended up married to the queen, dowager queen, and started having children with her. And... Uh, for that, we will continue to find out where that path leads and how it affects Wales in the midst of the War of the Roses and all of the succeeding developments in the next 50 years. But uh, that'll have to wait until next time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you are having a good day. I hope you're staying safe. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Or join us on Facebook at facebook.com for slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, 
If you would like to, you can always take part in our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. And uh, thank you everyone who does donate and thank you everyone who listens. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your patience as we switched over providers. We're now officially on the Anchor Podcast Network, and uh, it feels pretty good to have all that sorted out. So thankfully and hopefully it was fairly seamless for everybody. Until next time, everyone, take care, have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.